Walter Cruz Zavala has been in civil immigration custody since July 2017. In May of 2018, he won protection under the Convention Against Torture when a judge found that if he returned to his home country of El Salvador, he would likely be tortured. Despite winning his case twice, Zavala remains locked up in civil immigration custody. He joins us for this interview from Mesa Verde Detention Facility in Bakersfield. Walter, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Walter, why don't we just start with you telling your story. How did you become entangled in the immigration system, in the detention system? Well, I came here when I was 14, and I got cut out in the border um, by Texas, and that's how I started my immigration case. Since I was a minor and I was by myself, they couldn't deport me back to Sabah, so they, they let me stay with my dad in um, San Francisco, and that's how I started my whole process since 2004. And how old are you now? I'm 30 years old. Right now, I've been in the immigration system for the last uh, three years and a couple months, and uh, I can't go back to Salvador because I'm afraid of my life and I'm going to get killed or tortured over there by uh, the government or the gang members over there. And were you connected to those gang members before you came over to the United States when you were 14? Before I came here, I was getting, um, I was getting bullied, I was getting robbed by the gangs, uh, I was getting threatened by the gangs, me and my family, um, for the simple reason that they thought my family has money, uh, because my dad, he was in the United States, and, and that's the reason why I fled the country. And you've won your case now twice, correct? Yeah, that's correct. But you're still sitting in detention, why? Well, every time I won my case, the government appeals the case to the BIA, then every time the BIA has some type of excuse to send my case back to the court, and then my case was granted again, and then they appeal again, and then the BIA came out with another excuse or whatever. And in reality, they don't even have an excuse because they didn't even explain us why they sent the case back to the court, and, and they didn't give us any type of reason or explanation or nothing. What has the emotional toll been on you to, to have this case ping pong back and forth for the last three years, winning, getting your hopes up that you're going to be walking out the door only to be remanded back into custody? Well, you know what? It, it, it's been very emotional. It's been very frustrated. I don't really think it's a way or I can really have the worst experience the way I feel. Because in reality, I feel like I'm a I'm a free man. You know, I shouldn't be here. Uh, this is a civil matter case. That this is insane. I shouldn't be here. I've been sitting here for over three years, and I felt like like this is like a punishment. Like we kind of say that I was granted with my case, and I thought I was gonna get released, and then they just killed my hopes, and and. It's very stressing, frustrating, and not to know what's going to happen, uh, not to know when I'm going to get out, if I'm going to get out of here, if I'm going to go back to my country, if I'm going to be able to see my family again, my son. It's, it's a very stressing time, you know. What are the conditions like that you're living in? How, how have you been treated while you've been locked up in the detention center? Uh, the conditions over here is, they, they, they're not very good, like, 
food over here is not very healthy. Um, we don't really have um, a good medical condition system. Um, every time we ask for something or we have pain this or we have uh, medical issues, they always want to give You have one minute remaining for this call. Stuff like that. They don't, they don't really give you nothing. They don't really help you in nothing. We only have you only have about thirty seconds left on on this call, Walter. I'm not sure if you're able to call back yet or not. But yeah, I could I could call you back right now if you want. Oh, okay. Well, then why don't we why don't we hang up and why don't you call back? Okay. This is a free call from. Welcome from Florida. A detainee at Mesa Verde Ice Processing Center. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. Press 1 to accept the call. To deny this call, press. Thank you for using Telmate. Walter? Yes, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear I can hear you. You can hear me all right? Yes. So what, what I wanted to ask you next is that since the time that you have been inside of the detention center, a global pandemic has hit. COVID-19 has exploded across the globe and um, particularly in detention centers, in prisons um, across the country. How has that added to the stress and the strain of your time inside of Mesa Verde? Well, since the pandemic started, I mean... Um, uh, we in Mesa Verde, a lot of, of the people who was here, we start doing like um, hunger strike um, protests inside of the facility, and we were pretty much asking immigration not to not to bring new people or transfer people from prisons or these different facilities to to this facility because we knew the virus was going to get in, in, inside here. So, but they keep doing the same thing. They didn't, they pretty much disregarding us. And eventually it, it happens. So somebody got the COVID and the whole facility got sick. And I, I was one of the first ones who got sick and I was transferred to, to a different unit where they have all the sick people. And, and it was, to be honest, it was a very terrible moment of my life. Uh, I got really sick for a couple of days, and it took me over a month to finally get better. And it's, it was, I don't, to be honest, I don't wish, I don't wish COVID-19 to nobody. I mean, it's, it's nothing fun to be sick in this place. It, it's, it's like I said before, and the medical attention, and it's not very good. The only thing they were giving us, it was like aspirin and, they say they couldn't give us nothing better than that because they, they couldn't, they didn't have nothing for the COVID. So it was, it, it was, it was very, very crazy. I'll, I'll put it that way because you only see sick people around, people throwing up. And the crazy part is that even though we were sick, we still have to clean our own unit. Like they make us clean the restroom, they make us clean the floor and everything. They, they didn't want to do nothing. To, to get a, a final determination, Walter, it's it's looking like you would likely have to stay in detention a few more years. You're asking for release while that decision is being made. From your perspective, 
what are your options if they say no, that, that they're not going to release you and you're going to have to remain within the facility while this continues to wind its way through courts or ping pong back and forth between courts um, as it has the last three years? Well, you know, my lawyer, she's working in a Haven, so she's trying to, she was, she been fighting for me very hard for the last couple of years. And um, I'm hoping that they finally release me, but if, because if they deny they hate it very much. Um, seems like I'm looking for another couple of years in this place, and and I don't really know what I'm gonna do. To be honest, I don't. I haven't really made up my mind yet, but I, it, it's it's tough because I don't want to spend here another two three years. And we're talking about spending at least the whole thing is it will be like what like six years. I don't really feel like spending six years in this place. I don't know. The, at the same time, I don't want to sign because I'm scared for my life, like I said before. And I still got some family in, in, in Salvador, and I don't want to keep myself in danger, and I don't want to put my family in danger. And so I don't know. I'm I'm ending stay tonight. I might I might sign and take my own risk in my country, but. Sometimes I feel that I'd rather do that and, and stay here longer. Basically, what you're saying is that the the risk that you were looking at in El Salvador weighs on you less than the strain of having to sit in a facility for another couple of years. Yeah. Walter, let's let's talk a little bit about what does put you in, in danger going back to El Salvador. And that's, that's a tattoo that you were given by a government informant, correct? Yes. Can you talk about how that happened? Well, yes, um... When I was like 16, almost 17, I was going to school and um, I was I was pretty much getting bullied by the gang members in San Francisco. Um, for some reason, the gang members over here, um, they think like um, the people from the Salvador, they belong to to some type of gang. So I was getting bullied pretty much. It seems like the whole story was repeating itself again, like the same thing that was happening to me in the Sabo was happening to me here. So but with the difference that when it happens here I was a little older and and I got like I would say I got tired of being bullied and I ended joining to a a, a game uh, in Miss Burton game in San Francisco and I ended getting cut off in a big case with the government and they had this informant who was getting tattoos on on the youngsters in the in the game. You mentioned earlier that you have a son. What has the impact on your family been of all of this? Well, I mean, well, you know, my parents, uh, my family, the family that I got here, and the family that I got in the Salvador, they obviously they don't they don't want me to go back to El Salvador. They they it's been a registration time for them. They they want me to stay here. Um, especially my mother. I mean, she's very worried on me about my safety over there, and she thinks something's gonna happen to me. And and and, and I've been honestly, I've been doing this fight because of her, because of my family, and besides because of me. Walter, what what of your story have I not asked you that you feel like people need to know? Well, I think the main thing that I want people to know is that. That I'm a human being, you know, like I, I make mistakes like anybody else and and that doesn't mean that I'm a, a terrorist, that I'm a monster, that that I'm a criminal and, and because I just want like it what anybody wants. It's just a second a second chance, you know, to 
to show these people that I could do better in life. If you you were to to be released, if 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 that happens, where would you go? Um, I will go to uh, uh, it's a a rehab program. It's called the Salvation Army, which I believe I'm gonna spend over a couple months before before I finally make it home. Thank you so much for calling and sharing your story with us. You're welcome. Take care of yourself, man. We are joined now by Raha Drajani, the attorney for Walter Cruz Zavala. Raha, actually, I want to take a step back and have you do big picture. And from the legal standpoint, for you to walk us through Walter's case. Thanks for having me, Kat. Um, So, yeah, Walter ended up in immigration custody in July of 2017. That was over three and a half years ago. He fought for almost a year to fully present his case uh, before an immigration judge. There were several hearings. There were multiple expert witnesses, country conditions, documentation. And after fully presenting our case and the government fully presenting theirs, an immigration judge found that Walter was more likely than not to be tortured if he returned to El Salvador. That's actually one of the highest standards, legal standards or legal burdens in immigration law for a person facing deportation to actually meet. And Walter met it. But unfortunately, under immigration law, when you win and the government appeals, you stay detained. So even though Walter was the prevailing party, he stayed detained while DHS uh, filed their appeal. He then waited over a year for the Board of Immigration Appeals to then issue essentially a remand on a technicality, sent it back to the immigration court rather than make a final decision on his case. Um, This time, a new immigration judge had the case because the the one that had granted him relief had left uh, the immigration court. And this new judge granted relief under the Convention Against Torture again based on the findings of the first judge. He basically adopted her findings um, because there was there was nothing wrong with them and essentially granted Walter relief again, sent it back up. He cured the technicality that the board had pointed out and sent it back up to the BIA because DHS appealed again. Walter stayed in custody again And then they issued their latest decision. The BIA issued its latest decision in July of 2020. Now, as Walter's attorney, I had prepared him for two possibilities. One possibility is after, you know, a couple years of fighting your case, maybe you win at the Board of Immigration Appeals and you leave. But the other possibility um, that we had prepared for was that maybe the Board of Immigration Appeals denies his case, finds that he hasn't Um, met his burden of showing torture. And in that case, we'd have to appeal further to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. What I did not prepare Walter for was what happened. And what happened was that we saw an order, the likes of which I have never seen in 15 years of doing this work. We essentially uh, got an order saying, you know, just redo the case over again. And that's not really how it goes. An appellate court can can decide something's missing in the lower court or say that a that a judge did something wrong or point out errors. But it can't really just order a redo or a do-over without any reason. And that's exactly um, what happened here. Uh, if I can use a, a just a, like a basketball analogy, it's like you get to the end of a basketball game and there's a shot that wins, but The ref can't tell whether it's LeBron James that shot it or Anthony Davis that shot it. It shouldn't matter. They both played for the Lakers. The shot went in. 
Um, but the ref says, you know, just do the whole game over again. That's the best I can do to explain exactly what happened here. Walter won his case twice and the ref basically said, you know, let's just do, have a do over. Um, but here we're not talking about a game. We're talking about someone's life. We're talking about someone who's waited for a final result um, and contracted a, a potentially deadly virus with long-term consequences in the meanwhile. Um, this is not a game. And that's not, that's not a fair fight. So now Walter's in the position of essentially having to uh, start the process all over again. And the main issue with that is that he's detained Right. And so if we're looking at another couple of years before we get a final result, um, it's very likely, as you've heard from Walter, that he just won't be able to withstand the detention. That's legally what's happening right now. I mean, I guess I have a question for you. Like, if that's not how it goes, if they're not supposed to be able to do that, how do you fight that? Do you just you don't have a choice? You just have to start the case all over again? Or are there other legal pathways that you can try to go down to disentangle Walter from this process? Kat, we have had the same questions and we have um, consulted with, you know, attorneys that have been doing this longer than I have with, you know, national gurus on, on you know, appellate strategy. And no one can really make heads or tails out of this. The, the, this is sort of highlights the problem, the separation of problem, excuse me, separation of powers problem that we've always had in immigration law. The judge and the prosecutor have the same boss, and that's the executive branch of the United States. The appellate court, the BIA, is also part of the executive branch. So we would we will win at the Ninth Circuit. I, I feel certain about that because this is this is so egregious and so wrong. But the game here is how is he willing to wait to get to that real court, to get to an independent court, a court that um, is part of the judicial branch, right? And, and that can provide him with an independent and fair review of his case. And that's why the detention is such a powerful component of this story. Um, it's not just about the law. Uh, DHS uses detention as a litigation tool. If Walter gives up and goes... It won't be because DHS made the better argument. It won't be because they won fair and square. It's because Walter was coerced into having to give up his case. And one of the one of the most disturbing things for us has been DHS's response every time we brought up the prolonged detention. And their response, and when I say their response, I mean in writing in black and white, they have said that Walter holds the key to his detention um, and to his release. It is within his power to give up and go. He can end this by giving up and going. And so he chooses to remain detained. It's like torturing someone on the edge of a cliff and telling him all he has to do to end the pain is to jump. It makes no sense. And to, I mean, not that they're, they're prone to give them or, or they have to, but you know, in the conversation that we just had with Walter, he, he, spoke, he has a place to go, a place that you would think the courts would consider would be a safe place for him to be, a rehabilitation center with the Salvation Army. Why not let him walk and, and go get you know, the healing that he needs and, and be in a facility that I believe all parties would trust? And I'm so glad you asked that, Kat, because this is, this is actually... Um, most recently, this this is really what the, the custody battle comes down to um, and why it no longer makes sense that they're call, continue to call him uh, a danger to the community. You know, Walter has suffered multiple convictions in the United States. 
Um, but right now he's in civil detention. He's not there serving a sentence. He's not there to be legally punished for any crime. He's only there because he's a non-citizen. So if a U.S. citizen with the exact same history, with the exact same convictions and the exact same position um, was dealing with this, that person wouldn't be able to be held in custody, right? It's only his immigration status that keeps him in custody. And right now, he's actually been in civil immigration custody eight times longer than the longest sentence he has ever served for one of his uh, county convictions. And so what we've done, right, is to say, okay, you need to see that he is going to be a productive member of the community and that he's going to maintain his sobriety when he gets out. What if we got him into a full-time residential strict rehab program? We did that. And that program would take him actually for six months and he would be supervised 24-7 during that time. But we went beyond that. We reached out to the probation officer. Probation officers are law enforcement officers. They are, in fact, um, by, by the criminal legal system that we have, by definition, they are tasked with determining um, whether or not somebody can be out in the community or not. That probation officer um, has expressed surprise that Walter is still in custody on this case and has written to the immigration court saying, you know, normally I check in with people on a, on a biweekly basis, but if the court is still concerned about this person, I will check in with him on a weekly basis. And then on top of that, we've offered that Walter's willing to be on an ankle bracelet where DHS would know his location at any moment. And so it's not about public safety. That's not true. It's not honest um, because you, you, there, there can't be a situation. I mean, they've, they've essentially created a standard that he cannot meet. What else can he do? What else can we do to show that he's going to be okay and that he's going to be monitored? Um, so that's where we are even though immigration detention is not supposed to be, it's legally not classified as punishment because we're not supposed to repunish you for those same convictions. But that's exactly what's happening to Walter. Raha, I, I wonder from, from where you're sitting, how much you think this has to do with the gang that he's allegedly affiliated with, MS-13? I mean, most hunted, vilified, um, sensationalized, actually, uh, gang in, in the country. And and I, I'm wondering if, if you think that has anything to do with the way in which uh, DHS is dealing with him. I absolutely do, Kat. Um, and the irony of that is that Walter was in MS-13 for a very short period of time. He joined as a child. He was in the gang for about a year. Uh, most of that was when he was a minor. Uh, his total time that we've calculated adult uh, member of MS-13 is approximately two to three months. And this, you know, so it's either, it's either that the government doesn't want to pay attention to the details or it's just that the details don't matter. The actual explanations, the nuances of people's lives are not taken into consideration um, because if they were, we would actually we would be talking about the facts. We would be talking about how long this person spent um, as part of that gang and what they actually what they actually did as part of that gang. We're talking about a a, a 18 year old who was swept up in this huge gang prosecution and then subjected um, fought his case fighting federal charges for three years from 18 to 21 
and then got a pass to leave the gang. So they want to make this story about gang, about MS-13, but I, I think part of the story is you sent, you sent a, an informant into the gang to ink and tattoo, permanently mark babies, basically. So rather than send help, rather than send someone to show Walter that you know, that he, that maybe his condition of powerlessness could be, um, could be changed, could be shifted, could be altered, that maybe he didn't have to be part of a gang to end uh, what was basically a, a, up to then a lifetime of victimization. That was based, that's basically been his life is just a lifetime of, of victimization and trauma from child sexual abuse um, to being bullied, to, be, to being recruited by gangs in El Salvador. That was his experience. And rather then send someone in to let him know that he has resources and options. They sent someone in to permanently mark him in a way that now puts his life in danger. And frankly, since then, even in the United States has placed him in numerous precarious situations. As you can imagine, when you're in custody and you have a big M and S on your chest, that's going to be problematic for you. Right. Well, this is, this, his story is, is, is out over the airwaves now. What do you want listeners to do with his story? What can we do? I think that at this point, we, we want this story to be told over and over again. We want to lift up Walter's story because it's, it's a story about severe government misconduct. In my opinion, we're talking about putting, you know, experts, experts told us uh, in 2008, we knew in 2008 that we shouldn't subject people to solitary confinement for significant periods of time. We certainly knew that we shouldn't do it to an 18 to 21 year old. We certainly knew we shouldn't do it for three years and we did it anyway. And that had consequences that led Walter to drink. And when he drank, he picked up DUIs and when he picked up DUIs, he ended up in immigration custody. So there's this irony about the government um, and just our society constantly wanting people to be accountable for their mistakes. And as you heard in the interview, Walter is accountable for his mistakes, but I think the government needs to be accountable for theirs. It was a mistake to treat Walter the way they did from 18 to 21. It was a mistake to send an informant in to tattoo him and then never acknowledge that, never acknowledge that conduct, never be prepared to say, okay, we're the ones putting you in danger. Maybe we shouldn't be the ones to deport you to that danger. It was a mistake to not protect him so that he got COVID-19. How they've handled his immigration case has been egregious. So, you know, this is about a lack of lack of government accountability. And I think from from talking to Walter and from his perspective, we know that we have a significant legal battle ahead of us. And the only thing worse than him giving up and going at this point is him giving up and going and people never knowing um, what happened here and what the government did to this young man and continues to do to this young man. So I think actually at this point, it's about lifting up the story and talking about um, what's happening to Walter. Okay, Raha, we are going to leave it there. Thank you. Thank so you so much for joining us. Thank you. We've been speaking to Raha Jorjani. She is the attorney for Walter Cruz Zavala, who's been in civil immigration custody since July 2017. Despite winning his case twice, he remains incarcerated at the Mesa Verde Detention Facility in Bakersfield.